0: to weird distractions podcast a weekly podcast where we rotate between true crime conspiracy theories paranormal stories folklore a little bit of this and a little bit of that to provide you and more than likely what your little league baseball coach would consider a weird distraction from everyday life i'm one of your hosts alex and turns out you're just stuck with me this week so i'm going to do this episode solo hope it's okay a little too late to really make a complaint but regardless. Hopefully you enjoy this week's episode. Before we dive into it, though, do have a couple of housekeeping things that I need to cover. So first and foremost, just a little bit of a reminder that today, as this episode comes out on May 15th, we have a new Weird Spam episode. You can get access to this comedic episode by joining our Here for the Weird tier, which is about roughly $5 USD a month over on patreon.com slash Podcast. Secondly, I guess I need to do the whole, what do I need a distraction from bit? Cause that's kind of part of the show. So I'll be quick. Um, at this point, still not sure what my job is. I did get a little bit more information, but still waiting for the fine details. So that's extremely frustrating. I'd love to hear from you guys. You know, if you have a need for a distraction, let us know in the comments for today's episode over on our social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Now I think it's time to get into it. When it comes to the prohibition of alcohol in the United States, many of us outsiders looking in may be curious as to the ins and outs as of why it took place, who was responsible for it taking place, and why prohibition was eventually scrapped. However, has anyone looked or thought about it through a conspiracy theory lens? There are some out there who believe that during the prohibition in the US, and maybe even before, the government was actually poisoning alcohol and making citizens sick on purpose. Some even think that the poisoned booze was even responsible for killing folks. But is this true, or was this just another made-up conspiracy theory? This week, we'll be discussing the history surrounding prohibition of alcohol in the United States, along with the truths and the myths behind it. As always, due to coarse language and adult themes discussed, listener discretion is advised. weird friends tuning in who are unaware of the whole prohibition movement in the U.S., don't fret. As mentioned, we're going to discuss the history of it to kind of paint the scene a little bit better before we dive in with our tinfoil hats. Now, prohibition basically diminished the manufacturing, transportation, and selling of alcohol in the United States under the 18th amendment. It took place officially from 1920 to 1933. However, it actually goes way, way back, like farther than 1920. The prohibition period that we're going to be discussing today came out of what's known as the temperance movement. According to Britannica, the temperance movement was reportedly dedicated to promoting moderation or complete abstinence in the use of consuming alcohol, which consumption of alcohol in the U S was a pretty common ordeal. According to the BU today website from 1900 until 1915, the average adult drank about 2.5 gallons or 9.46 liters of alcohol per year, which is roughly about 13. standard drinks per week. These numbers were not something that the members of the temperance movement were proud of. They allegedly felt that alcohol was sinful and problematic and that those that were drinking alcohol needed to be shown a different way, a better way of life in their eyes, away from the booze. This thinking style wasn't new to the 1900s. The temperance movement, it reportedly dates back to around the early 1800s where abstinence pledges allegedly were brought into churches and the first temperance organization would be founded 1808. This organization, located in Saratoga, New York, was just the tip of the slow melting iceberg, which would eventually begin seeping all across America. By 1833, there were up to 6,000 local temperance societies across several states. Now that numbers were growing, it was time to loop the law into the mix to really see some changes. In 1838, the state of Massachusetts passed a law which apparently prohibited the sales of strong liquor in less than than 15 gallon or 55 liter quantities. However, this law of passing was repealed two years later. The state of Maine perhaps decided to take the torch from Massachusetts, and in 1846, they were reportedly passed a prohibition law themselves. Many other states seemingly followed behind Maine during the Civil War, which was once again from 1861 to 1865. Now some listening may be wondering, who exactly was behind the temperance movement? One member I want to shine a light on is a woman by the name of Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation, born Caroline Amelia Nation, or Carrie A. Nation, was born on November 25th, 1846, and can best be described as one of the loudest members when it comes to the temperance movement. But you might be wondering, why was Carrie against alcohol? Reports point that this may be due to her first husband, Charles Gloyd, who reportedly died an early death due to alcoholism. However, accounts kind of vary. Other reports claim that Charles didn't die due alcoholism whilst married to Carrie, but rather the two eventually divorced due to his alcoholism and potential domestic abuse. Regardless of the specific reason, Carrie seemingly despised alcohol and what it stood for, and what it did to people. Which, to be fair, is a normal response to something that had such a negative impact on her life. This negative impact by alcohol evidently led Carrie to starting a local branch of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU, along with campaigning for the enforcement of Kansas's ban on the sale of liquor. According to the history website, the WCTU was founded by women, quote, concerned about the problems alcohol was causing their families and society. Their ideologies at the time were based off of the fact that women lacked many of the same rights as men, and the potential scary reality that their lives would face if ruined by their husbands drinking too much. With this in mind, and to stress this again, Carrie took her fight against alcohol seriously. Carrie would reportedly sing to patrons outside of bars and saloons, mostly, I'm assuming, how bad alcohol was, and when she wasn't singing about this, she was reportedly making rude comments towards the bartenders or the individuals that were selling alcohol. Basically, she was dropping live diss tracks about those who were either drinking alcohol or that were selling alcohol. This might seem kind of fairly mundane, and I'm sure Carrie knew if she and the WCTU wanted to be heard, they would have to kind of turn things up a notch. To elaborate on how she and others did this, I'm going to directly quote an article by Joseph Galloway from The Edmund Booster. On December 26, 1900, the doors of the Manhan Brothers Bar in the elegant Carry House at Wichita first open, and there stood Carrie Nation, with a handful of rocks and a lead pipe. The bartender was frozen in shock at the sight of a woman in his establishment, because once again, this is 1900, we women were not really allowed to go many places, especially fun places. Back to the quote, Carrie stepped up to the hand-carved cherry wood bar and fired a salvo of rocks at the huge mirror. According to this report, among others, Carrie then proceeded to rip up a framed oil painting before using a hatchet or a lead pipe, some accounts vary, to bust up some of the bottles behind the bar. Basically, she went in and she went full frontal to let it known that she was not impressed with this establishment and that she was definitely not interested in buying a shot or a round for the bar. As far as my understanding, this was not an isolated incident. Some reports claim she was arrested more than 30 times for similar incidents at different saloons. Carrie eventually received the nickname Hatchet Granny because she reportedly would trash these saloons using a small hatchet that she carried with her. Which, I'm not gonna lie, that's pretty badass. Being referred to as Hatchet Granny, like that's something that... I mean hopefully I could live up to that level but alas my name's also not carry a nation So I feel like it kind of comes with the territory. Anyways, Carrie is a prime example as to how strong the WCTU felt against abolishing alcohol, along with others supporting the temperance movement. They didn't want it in their homes. They didn't want it in their shops. They didn't want it anywhere, which I think is a good time to shift gears and actually discuss what we're here to discuss being prohibition. With perseverance and persistence from those a part of the temperance movement, such as Carrie A Nation, the 18th amendment would be presented, passed and put into effect on January 17th, 1920. Once again, no one could manufacture, sell, or transport booze once enacted. Prohibition actually was reportedly seemingly, at first, having a positive effect on the country. According to the YouTube video by Bailey Sarian for the Dark History Podcast, police were given these big old bounties to crack down on bars that were operating illegally, which in the beginning was of course happening frequently. As time passed though, alcohol-related arrests and incarceration rates reportedly began to dwindle down. Referencing again from the YouTube video by Bailey Sarian for the Dark History Podcast, apparently one jail in Chicago actually closed down due to low inmate population, which has been connected to being association with Prohibition. Alcohol consumption was also reportedly dropped down to at least 30% within Prohibition's first year of enactment. To those that pushed for Prohibition, such as the WCTU and other temperance movement groups alike, this probably seemed like a big old win. However, the battle of booze had really just begun. According to the history website, prohibition had become a bit of a headache to actually enforce in the 1920s. And listeners are probably asking, well, why was it a headache? For starters, the prohibition law had made the manufacturing of alcohol illegal. Manufacturing, as Bailey points out in her YouTube video, is a production of something in large quantities with the intention to sell. But this didn't actually necessarily include the people making alcohol from themselves, thus creating a legal loophole. And I I don't think I need to explain why legal loopholes are headaches, kind of seems self-explanatory. The 18th amendment also didn't necessarily state that people couldn't drink alcohol either under prohibition, which once again, a legal loophole. These loopholes became a benefit for folks who were previously profiting off of making and selling alcohol and for those that simply who just wanted to drink it. Because once these loopholes were realized, folks began simply adapting to the situation Situation being thrusted onto them, which leads us to the sneaky links of prohibition. Practices like bootlegging or rum running became more of a common practice during prohibition. Now you might be wondering, What's the difference between bootleggers and rum runners? Bootleggers were probably making their own alcohol from any resource they could access. Basically a DIY project for alcohol. While rum runners were basically getting alcohol from all over the place and transporting it to wherever they needed to. Alcohol could be purchased from Canada or Mexico and then brought back to be supplied to those purchasing from the run runners or to really whoever. Now back to the DIY aspect of prohibition though, because this is kind of interesting. Drinks like moonshine and bathtub gin were. Are becoming a more common creation within the homes of Americans. Moonshine is known to be a high proof, usually around the 8% alcohol volume mark, and is reportedly called as such as it was commonly made at nighttime to avoid any detection from the law. Bathtub gin was reportedly made by mixing cheap grain alcohol with water along with flavors like juniper berry juice or glycerin, according to Wikipedia. Honestly, the thought of bathtub gin or moonshine hurts my throat and soul just talking about it because both of them sound potent. Like, I think I need to take a Tums or a Gravel as we talk about this because, oof, I don't know how people could stomach it. On top of Rum Runners, Moonshine, and everything in between, we also saw the creation of speakeasies. Speakeasies were these secret bars where people could go and drink their booze without the law down their throats. Speakeasies could really be anywhere. They could be in your neighbor's basement, a secret library room, or anything really secretive and big enough for groups of folks to kind of gather and drink in privacy. Even though there was this new law set out trying to diminish alcohol use, it really only promoted more creativity for Americans who refused to follow suit. And things definitely got more creative during this time. Now, I know I had mentioned that alcohol-related crimes had gone down in some areas, but where there is a decline in one area, there's usually a rise somewhere else at some point. Think of it kind of like a seesaw. If we one end is down, another is up and vice versa. This is where the gangs come in. And no, I'm not referencing what you call you and your three friends when you're drunk on the weekend over on Instagram. Hi, that that is me. Gangs across the nation would start getting involved with this underground alcohol scene taking place during Prohibition. This basically allowed for non-gang related folks involved to get a sense of security or business from the gangs. One notorious gang member associated with the history of Prohibition is that of Al Capone. Now, most people may know who Al Capone was, but for others that don't, don't worry. I'm going to give a little bit of a quick background on him. Alfonse Gabriel Capone aka Al Capone aka Scarface was born on January 17th of 1899 aka He was a fellow Capricorn like myself. Unlike me, though, Al would eventually become one of the most well-known Chicago-Italian American gang members of all time. By the time Al Capone was in his 20s, he was associated with the Chicago Outfit, aka the Chicago Mob, among other names, which is an all-Italian American organized crime group based in Chicago, Illinois. The Chicago Outfit is part of the larger Italian-American mafia and is originally from Southside Chicago, according To Wikipedia. Needless to say, Al was kind of a big deal involved with other big deals at the time. Fast forwarding back to Prohibition, or rewinding back to Prohibition, whichever way you decide to go, it's been reported that gang members like Al reportedly earned upwards of 60 to 100 million annually off of Prohibition. This mass income from Prohibition supposedly came out of deals such as protection for those making and selling the alcohol, providing security for speakeasies, and pay off any suspicious cops or politicians, basically making sure that they look the other way, according to a history article by Dave Ruse. Needless to say, gang members like Al were really profiting on the Prohibition. Now, although this may seem potentially harmless for the government, aka the ones not making as much bank as the gang members, was causing a little bit of a stir. Basically, people were making money illegally in the eyes of the government, and the government wanted in. I mean, it's it's that capitalism greed that we have all come to love and learn, and actually, we don't love it, we kind of despise it, but regardless, the government wanted in on this money. Now, how is it that the government could actually get in on this money? How could they stop people from buying, selling, and drinking alcohol when there's already a law out there? As the old cliche saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. And desperate is what I imagine the American government felt like during this time. They were missing out on millions of dollars and kind of probably felt like they didn't have any control on what was going on behind closed doors. Now, as mentioned in the beginning, people began whispering that those dying due to alcohol were actually being poisoned by the government. Basically, they thought that the government had put out bad batches of alcohol to poison those partaking in illegal activities. Kind of a... I'll show you notion. It should also be noted that people may have died due to bad batches of alcohol they were creating themselves. Similar to giving yourself food poisoning, people were accidentally sending themselves to an early grave, trying to make alcohol at home, which is tragic. But what makes this situation weirdly devastating is that those who thought that the government was behind poisoning the public were actually onto something. Those concerns were backed by forensic pathologist Charles Norris. Charles was born a Sagittarius on December 4th of 1870, 18- 1967, and would be New York's first appointed chief medical examiner by 1918. Which, in my mind, that's kind of a big deal to be the first of anything, especially the first chief medical examiner. That sounds like a really cool job. Or maybe to me, because I'm a little bit morbid, but regardless, Cool gig. Prior to Prohibition, aka sometime in 1918, Charles reportedly noticed an uptick in alcohol-related deaths during his work. He also noticed a higher alcohol rate in the people he was seeing, which presumably alerted him to a big old red flag of a situation kind of presenting in front of him. Charles reportedly decided to loop in his colleague, forensic scientist Alex Alexander Gettler, into the situation, which Alex Alexander... I mean, I must, I I know Alex is a great name, but you gotta say it twice, I guess, I don't know. Regardless, Alex and Charles basically discovered, as Bailey Sarian put in her YouTube video, that every alcohol-related death in New York City was due to the alcohol being poisoned. (gasps) The more that the two looked into the situation, the more they found. For example, some of the alcohol being consumed was reportedly mixed with chemicals such as cyanide, arsenic, and lead. I don't think a podcaster needs to tell you this, but those are things you don't want in your drinks. Those are things you don't mix your drinks with. You know, Dr. Pepper, sure. Coca-Cola, uh-huh. Orange juice, why not? But no cyanide, no arsenic, and no lead. With all of this information at hand, the men reportedly try and reach out to the government and even the manufacturers to show them that you know, there were concerns. There is literal poison in the alcohol. It's been documented that apparently no one listened. I can imagine if it was anything like how it is today, the government was like, oh, mm-hmm, there's poison there. Yeah, well, um, we're trying to build a new road, so we've got other plans. Maybe come back in about two weeks, right? The men were basically told, oh, that's cute. Okay, goodbye. We don't want to hear it right now. But by 1919, things changed. It should be noted that some forms of alcohol were still available for purchasing and manufacturing in 1920 and during prohibition in general. These types of alcohols included prescription alcohols and industrial grade alcohols. So for example, in terms of industrial grade, the kind of alcohol that you mix with, you know, paint and floor thinners. So sometime in 1919, Charles and Alex discovered that the government had alcohol manufacturers participating in some funky business when it came to alcohol. According to the J Store Daily article by Tara Isabella Burton, 30th U.S. President Calvin Coolidge and his administration were actually encouraging manufacturers to practice what's called denaturing denaturing according to the science direct website refers to alcohol products adulterated with toxic and or bad tasting additives for example methanol benzene pyridine, castor oil gasoline and many many more now the reason behind doing this was so that the manufacturing companies could avoid paying a liquor tax which basically if the alcohol content was too high they would would denature the alcohol, so it would lower the content, which means they didn't have to pay the tax. Not only that, but as mentioned before, if all these different chemicals were being added to alcohol, and that alcohol product that came out of this denaturing made its way to the public, it would actually deter people from drinking because, I'm not gonna lie, adding those kind of chemicals probably wouldn't taste good to your drink so if your drink doesn't taste good you're more than likely not going to drink it again which personal note for example i don't like jagermeister i've tried it i don't like it and now i actively avoid it kind of similar but not really because at least i know with jagermeister there isn't any chemicals even though in my opinion it tastes like there's chemicals in it but okay now we're now we're getting a little bit off track so basically in my mind it sounds like the government were trying to create kind of a tax break for the presumed wealthy and then on top of that they were adding these nasty additives to perhaps deter people from drinking but unsuspected drinkers wouldn't know what they were drinking until it was kind of too late so Charles and Alex stumbled upon this through their investigations but once again when they went to the U.S. government and said hey uh something's not right they were basically ignored Some listening might be wondering, well, why is the government not listening? I mean, this is a huge concern. People are getting sick, they're dying. Not only that, but it just kind of seems morally wrong to ignore the deaths of people, especially their own citizens. According to the J. Stora Daily article by Tara Isabella Burton, Charles knew exactly why him and Alex were basically being ignored by the government. In a direct quote from that article, quote, Norris reveals how New York of the 1920s viewed certain populations as disposable. By entering the sphere of immorality, alcoholics, in the eyes of the Coolidge administration, forfeited their right to life. It's telling that, even in death, there are two rules, one related to respectable drunks and one for the degenerates, end quote. Basically, in the eyes of the government, if people didn't want to get sick and die from the tamper booze, then don't drink it. But it was hard for folks who were wanting to drink to determine whether the booze they had purchased was good or not. Not only that, but it seems as though the government was really focusing on how the problem was more or less one for the middle to lower class folks as opposed to the elite or the wealthy in America. Those that weren't a part of the elite or wealthy were really the only ones seemingly getting the denatured alcohol. This group of folks, primarily working class individuals, were accessing their tampered booze from run runners and bootleggers who somehow were getting their hands on the denatured deadly drinks. It's not clear how specifically the denatured alcohol got into the public pool, but once it did, it was bad news bats all around. It may even be fair to speculate that perhaps some Run Runners knew what they were selling, but they were selling it despite knowing to make a profit. Capitalism really is a murderer disguised as humanity, and Prohibition really makes this clear. By the summer of 1926, aka during the 6th year Prohibition, things were poorly getting out of hand in terms of the underground booze scene in America and, of course, the government was now getting a little bit worried. According to Bailey Sarian's YouTube video, there was reportedly a rumour that the government wanted to make it nearly impossible for the filtration of the poison out of the alcohol to happen. This reportedly may have led to alcohol being made with chemicals like kerosene, benzene, and priodine, aka more nasty stuff you shouldn't drink. These toxic chemicals were being added to the mix because they are a Apparently impossible to filter out as mentioned. Now, for those listening and wondering, okay, so now we have this new concoction of booze, what would happen if ingested? Well, people could expect hallucinations, stomach pains, and even death. And I'm not using death as a euphemism for a hangover. We're talking about actual cold going six feet under kind of death. So this apparent new mixture comes out in the summer of 1926, or at least it's being noticed in the summer of 1926. But now we actually have to focus our attention to christmas eve of 1926 so grab your coats get warm because it's about to get real cold up in here our story begins at the bellevue hospital located in the manhattan neighborhood of new york city new york apparently there were some intoxicated folks in the hospital that evening mostly suffering from injuries related to falling to further paint the scene i'm going to directly quote bailey sarian's youtube video on what happens next Quote, all of a sudden, a scared-looking man with a bright red face came stumbling into the emergency room, screaming, help me, help me, please, Santa Claus is chasing me and he has a baseball bat. Now, to those listening, you're probably thinking what I first thought when I heard this, which was, what the hell is this person talking about? There was, in fact, no sign of the jolly Christmas icon behind this unnamed patient. Before staff could inform the man of this, he reportedly fell over, fell into a coma, and died at the hospital. This wasn't the only weird event that took place that evening for hospital staff. Within a few hours of that previously mentioned man coming in, more people were coming into the hospital. These people were claiming to see strange visual hallucinations, which to them were real. But before long, they would topple over and pass away, just like the first guy. All of these people had something else in common. They were all reportedly intoxicated. So much so that the hospital reportedly began smelling similar to a distillery. There was a reported grand total of 60 people that had entered the hospital, reporting hallucinations, with some luckily not dying, but rather reportedly suffering from permanent blindness from suspected alcohol poisoning. Eight of the 60 patients that had come into the Bellevue Hospital reportedly passed away on Christmas Eve due to this, and then on New Year's Day, apparently there would be another 23, people that reportedly died due to similar circumstances. Remember Alex and Charles from earlier? Well, this whole situation rose another big old red flag for them, who reportedly were both working at the hospital when all of this was taking place. Charles responds to this situation by going to the media, which is fair given the fact that the government obviously weren't going to listen to them. They didn't listen to them before Prohibition, why would they listen to them now? In a direct quote from the Windsor Star, dated December 28th, 1926, quote, Dr. Charles G. Norris placed medical responsibility for the deaths and for the suffering of those poisoned on the government. The government knows that it is not stopping drinking by putting poison in alcohol, Dr. Norris declared. It's known that the bootleggers are doing it, and yet it continues its poisoning process, needless of the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison, end quote. The Windsor Star article further states the following, which I thought was interesting. Quote, seven deaths attributed to alcoholism occurred in Chicago over Christmas, the police announced tonight. Dr. Herman N. Bundison, city health commissioner, said 95% of the liquor brought to the city laboratories for analysis was found to be poisonous and estimated that 90% of all the liquor consumed in Chicago over the holiday contained poison in one form or another. End quote. Basically, Charles was putting the blast on the US government and the data being collected from all over was backing him up. Alex and Charles then reportedly released a list of every individual who was affected by the poison alcohol. Out of these people, 1,200 people either got ill or became blind due to the tampered alcohol, with 400 of those people dying. From my understanding of the resources I use today, every person allegedly that was on that list apparently was part of the working class, which was noted as the biggest group of people being let down by the failed law of prohibition. People from all over the country began requesting the appeal of the 18th Amendment and for prohibition to come to an end. According to the history website, in early 1933, Congress adopted a resolution proposing a 21st Amendment to the Constitution that would repeal the 18th. The 21st Amendment was ratified on December 5th, 1933, ending prohibition. In that same year as well, they also made a law removing the adding of chemicals such as arsenic to alcohol. For those curious folks wondering, did the government actually ever admit to poisoning alcohol? Apparently they would in 1927, but their argument was that if people weren't illegally buying alcohol to drink, then they wouldn't have, you know, got ill and died. So once again, Another loophole. The attention of the nation seemed to shift to other big news at the time, such as increased gang and gun violence, illnesses, wars, and more. So eventually the whole, the US government is poisoning its own citizens news became yesterday's news. So to summarize today's episode, which I think we can all agree, it's kind of a scary reminder that we cannot always trust those designated to lead us. The US government may not have had the initial or sole intent to kill off anyone during the funky booze that was kind of being made by the manufacturers, but they really didn't do anything in order to stop the bad booze from hitting the public streets. Not only that, but Prohibition itself seemed to be this big old backfired plan from the hop. And unfortunately, a lot of Americans had to watch it unfold in real time over a span of 13 years. I'd love to hear from listeners. Does anyone have a wild family story from prohibition? If so, email it to us and we'll try and feature it in a future listener distractions episode. With that said, that is the end of today's weird distractions episode. Please let me know what you think. Hopefully you were okay with just hearing my voice, but if not, don't worry. We've got some great guests coming on the show for some really cool topics that I'm super excited to tell everybody about and just for the sake of time I'm going to list all of today's resources in the show notes. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or really any else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Good Pods, Podchaser, and many more. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a rating or review. On Spotify, you can also leave us a five-star rating as well. This helps get more attention to our weird little show, and you can do this kind of support for free. Another way to support the show for free and to make sure you never miss us an update is to follow us on our social media platforms we're over on instagram twitter facebook and tiktok if you're wanting more weird distractions and want to support the show for a little bit of money consider joining one of our two tiers over on patreon both tiers currently get early access ad free episodes and monthly bonus episodes you can find out more by going to patreon.com weird distractions podcast shout out to our current patrons tom bailey angela john alicia lynn sissy shadow courtney and cheryl We love you and appreciate your support. If you're not able to sign up for our Patreon, but still want to support the show, not a problem. You can definitely support the show financially and get yourself something over on Redbubble. You can find some of our merch designs available on sweaters, notebooks, t-shirts, and much more. Just head on over to Redbubble's website and look up Weird Distractions Podcast. You can also make a one-time donation to the show over on Buy Me A Coffee, which you can find that link in our social media bios. Lastly, we love to hear from our listeners. We're always collecting your weird tales of true crime, paranormal encounters, and well, anything that really made you think Ooh, that was weird. We've released some Listener Distractions episodes and we'd love to keep doing the series. You can email us at Weird Distractions Podcast, spelled W-E-I-R-D-D-I-S-T-R-A-C-T-I-O-N-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at Outlook.com. Make sure to let us know if you want us to use your name or keep you anonymous if we read your story on a Listener Distractions episode. You can also email us any corrections that need to be made after today's episode. As always, if you need a distraction, we got you. Bye. We're Malice After Midnight, a podcast that focuses on true crime. We want you to feel like you're part of the conversation. And sometimes we deal with pretty dark subject matter. But we always manage to have a good time. She dragged the body into a closet before she bled the body out and cut it into nine pieces. Nine pieces. Okay. Now, Christine's the Christine's following... counting arms and legs. There's four. <laughs> two arms, two legs. I mean, I'm counting... The head is four, a piece. Four, five, the cut the body in half. <laughs> That's six, seven. There's two more pieces. I'm not sure. Maybe she cut the, the feet. Two, four, six, eight, ten, nine, and the head and left the body so hands feet legs arms head head shoulders knees and toes toes, knees and toes toes. (laughs) (laughs) so check us out we're malice after midnight with tina steve and christine